0: Welcome to podcast number 62 of My Favorite Detective Stories, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Today's guest is Bob Ron. He's a president and director of Investigations of Management Resources. He's a former homicide detective and has over 45 years of investigative experience. Bob has come full circle in his investigative career, utilizing his extensive law enforcement experience and adapting it to the private sector by assisting attorneys, insurance companies, and corporations. He holds a master's degree in public administration from John Jay College of Criminal Justice and a bachelor's degree in sociology from St. Francis College. He has specialized in criminal defense and appellate cases where he has found evidence removing the guilt from his client. Today's story is very interesting in that it almost bankrupted his company and why he continued to work on it well after the money well dried up. My favorite detective stories podcast features past or present detectives and investigative journalists. As a working investigator of over 42 years, I hope to inform, inspire and entertain you with great stories. We want to learn from our guests how they got started in the field and why they decided to become investigators in the first place. Listen as they tell us about the early years and who were their mentors and why those mentors had such a huge impact on their careers. We will explore what makes for a good investigator and what makes for good investigation. But most importantly, after you get to know our guests, we will ask them for their favorite detective story, or maybe two. Stay tuned. The interview is about to begin. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, You're quite welcome. And how's the weather in upstate New York today? Uh, It's hot
1: and humid up here. It's sticky.
0: Yeah, we're having the same thing over here in Connecticut. I know that, uh, uh, we had a dreary spring and I'm paying for it now this summer. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, it's been very wet here as well. And, uh, uh, you know, now the humidity is back. Yes. So. The,
0: uh, the summer heat and humidity. So what was it that made you want to become a police officer in the first place?
1: Well, as, uh, I, I was born and raised in Brooklyn and, um, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, I had a very close family, and they would always talk about uh, getting a civil service job. Civil service jobs were the best because of the retirement and the benefits and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as I got older, I, I developed this desire. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to help people. Okay. Uh, and um, I started, um, you know, I went to high school – uh, went to college, but I uh took the civil service test. I listened to my uh to my uh family. I took all of the civil service tests in New York City, uh fire department, police department, uh and the police just happened to call me first. So uh you know, I, I took it. Okay. So how old were you uh when you took the uh when you went into the academy? Twenty.
0: Twenty twenty years old. Yep. Wow. And uh just give me an idea of what year that was.
1: Uh, November of
0: 1973. Okay. I was a college sophomore at that time. And a few of my uh, professors had gotten their master's degrees from John Jay. Yep. And uh, they decided that they wanted to become uh, teachers in the uh, Pennsylvania higher education system. And one of them or two of them actually landed out in Indiana, Pennsylvania, where I went to school, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, so, uh, I was regaled with, uh, cop stories from NYPD and that didn't even count the TV and, and the movies and all that other stuff. So, right. uh, yeah, but it was, uh, but it was also that I, I felt that uh, a lot of good things were happening in uh, New York at the time. They had to uh, fight crime and they had to figure out new ways to do it. And it wasn't an unlimited budget. So anyway, no, it wasn't no.
1: So, uh, you're, you're in the academy you're and, uh, you graduate. Actually- well, I was in the academy and I was I was also in college at the same time. So I had to juggle. Uh, obviously, the academy took, took precedence. Right. Uh, sure. But, but I had to juggle my college schedule, uh, you know, around the academy classes, which luckily the uh, professors I had were, you know, worked with me and let me do that. Um, and so I graduated from the academy and then I finished up uh, college uh, graduating from St. Francis college in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. And then going on, uh, while I was, uh, I guess I had two or three years on the job and I decided I wanted to go for my master's. Okay. So I went to, uh, I I also went to John Jay and I got my master's in public administration. Nice. Nice. And
0: you don't look back on either of those, uh, learnings as being a waste of
1: time. Oh, not at all. They were tremendous help. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, my father wondered why
0: I needed to have a college education to be a cop. And I said, well,
1: well, dad,
0: I want to be, I want to be a smart cop. (laughs) I'm not being mean.
1: Of course I'm not, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, well, back then, uh, in, in New York, it was, um, it it was unheard of to, to have a master's degree and be a cop. Uh, you know, but I, but I knew, uh, eventually, you know, that, the that, the, the, the department had to grow. And if I wanted to grow with it, I, you know, I sooner or later, uh, uh, you know, a higher education was going to be required and eventually it was. Yeah. And,
0: uh, and you were ahead of the curve. How about that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: But yes. uh, now did that help the patrolman and where were you first assigned?
1: Well, I came out of the Academy. I lived in Brooklyn. I came out of the Academy and they sent me to, uh, Northern Manhattan, the the uh, the furthest spot in Northern Manhattan that that you could be be at without being in the Bronx. Okay, so you're so, uh, you're talking um like Dykeman Street up around there. Dykeman Dyckman Street and Inwood and all of that yeah. up there. Yep, yep. Yeah, my daughter uh, when
0: she was going to school in. Uh, New York City, downtown, Uh, she couldn't afford downtown rents. So she got an apartment up in Inwood and uh, not far from a a train stop. So she was, you know, walking distance to the subway. And then, uh, you know, if she caught the express, great. If not, well, it was about an hour. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so you're up in the northern part of uh, Manhattan.
1: Manhattan. Uh, I started out up there uh, and and I was on what they called vacation relief uh, as a rookie. Mm -hmm. Um, So I uh, basically I was working out of the trunk of my car because every three weeks I would be sent to a different command or a different precinct Mm. and, uh, you know, filling in for the uh, the veteran officers who were taking vacations. So I bounced around uh, all over Manhattan, uh, Manhattan North, uh, and then uh, eventually I worked my way down to Manhattan South. Uh, skipping, skipping Midtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, I uh, went went all the way downtown to the Lower East Side, uh, Chinatown, uh, Delancey Street, a uh, street You know, all those. Uh, and I and I worked there. And it was at that point that I wound up in uh, an anti-crime unit, which is a plainclothes. Uh, it's not a detective's uh, position. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a police officer's position, but it's a plainclothes job. Okay. And uh, we would, you know, we would ride around the precinct in an unmarked car, answering uh, answering calls uh, uh, for cr- uh, robberies, burglaries in progress, gun gun calls, mm. things of that nature. Uh, so I did that for a while, and that opened up a door. the uh detective bureau oh okay so uh i went into the detective bureau as as a police officer as a white shield cop okay and um i guess i did about three years or so there and i finally you know got my gold shield and became a detective Perfect. and i (laughs) i stayed in lower manhattan for a while and then i transferred over to uh to brooklyn okay uh, where I worked there as a detective for several years.
0: Yeah, a um,
1: little different world. Oh, completely different world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> completely yeah. different world. So during uh-huh. that
0: time period, uh, I know you bounced a little bit in the very, very beginning. But were there any mentors or anybody that uh, you looked up to that uh, taught you what good policing was all about?
1: There were there. Uh, I, I would have to say, uh, with all the bouncing around, I had uh, it was it was an advantage, I think. Because I got to meet a lot of different, uh, different cops uh, from a lot of different walks of life, uh, you know, with a lot of different backgrounds. And you're able to, you know, watch them and learn from them. And I, I think uh, I, I would have to say my patrol supervisors, the sergeants that I dealt with on a daily basis in e- each of these different precincts that I work, uh, I learned a lot from them. Because uh, they all had different philosophies about being a supervisor, but they all had uh your best interest at heart mm. uh, so you know uh, listening to them, learning from them was a tremendous help
0: yeah and part of the, and part of it probably was, and I'm thinking of the time frame that you had guys that had might have been on the job twenty twenty five years at that point when you're it's in the mid seventies now or late seventies for you. these are guys that cut their teeth back in the fifties, maybe walking street beats and maybe walk in knowing the neighborhoods very intently and understanding what that personal, those personal relationships were about. Uh, maybe more so than say this, the the stranger policing of sector cars or precinct cars. Does, does that
1: make sense? What I just said? It does make sense because uh, you know, as a rookie, I did a lot of, a lot of uh, foot patrols. Okay. Uh, and I did them, uh, I did them in, um, uh, in the housing developments in New York city. Oh, sure. You know, we would be doing, we would do vertical patrols. Uh, we would patrol in and around the, the housing developments. And you did, you got to know the people that live there by, by being on foot patrol because you saw them every day. If you worked a day tour, you saw them going to work. If you worked a, a four to 12 ship, mm-hmm. you saw them coming home from work. You saw them on the weekends with their, with their families and kids and you got to know them, right? And and that was a to me that was that was a huge plus. Now now
0: fifty years later, and I hate to say it, it's fifty almost fifty years at this point. Uh, Sixty nine will be fifty years, so uh, you know, late you know, forty plus years later, we're now getting something resembling that back with the connection age of social media, Facebook, uh, you know, uh, WhatsApp uh which is called our and, and uh, snap and some mm-hmm. of the other ones uh, you're getting a little bit of a glimpse into people's lives through social media because they're on social media but I, of course it's nothing like you know a personal relationship that you develop while you're walking a beat and uh, and uh, talking to the people over and over again you know you help them with the little stuff and they'll help you with the big stuff
1: oh absolutely uh yeah. you know i i can remember one night we you know my partner and i were we were on foot patrol and we were making an arrest and it was getting a little, uh, you know, a little hairy out there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we called for backup, but, but we, we, prior to us calling for, for backup, you could hear the sirens off in a distance coming before we called. So somebody had called for us mm-hmm. uh, and we found out uh, afterwards that it was, you know, s- couple of the tenants in in the buildings where we were patrolling and you know that's that's the advantage of getting to know people because they look they look out their window they see what's going on they know you and and they know us and and you know they called for it Mm -hmm. you know yeah sure so
0: now i know it's not the same but it's funny how uh the the good the good practices that you were taught when you were young in the job are now st- starting to come back around circle back again now with learning how to uh you know the, the how do I want to say it bob the cop on the beat had a mini computer in his head of people places and things and now they have a mini computer in their
1: car <laughs> right and but, they got smart and they got smartphones now too yeah so. <laughs> exactly
0: so you see my point it's like it's coming back around again but nothing replaces uh knowing your citizenry And, uh, and them getting to know you. Uh, I know, uh, that, that comes, I know we're talking about that from a community relations standpoint or a community policing standpoint. I mean, those are buzzwords in the industry, but realistically, the more that the, um, the coppers are out of their cars and the more that they're talking to people on the street and in the neighborhoods, the better relationships they have and the more they can put together, um, intelligence and they, the better intelligence they can put into the system does that make sense what i just said
1: yeah it does because again you're out there you know every day you're walking around you're 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 making observations of of people and things that you couldn't do if you were riding by in a car yeah. uh you're getting to know uh um, um, who who the uh the, the good people are and and who the people are that may you know cause problems down the road sure um
0: uh, and, and now now you're and as we we're talking about your business and how you were growing you know now you're a uh a, a gold shield and 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 uh, did you say Williamsburg or just Brooklyn I forget
1: no, it was, it was in Brooklyn. Uh, it was in Brooklyn North, which encompasses Williamsburg. Okay. And
0: there, you know, now you're a detective and there are other police officers, street cops there that you can lean on for day in and day at intelligence. But how did your job change at that
1: point in time when you became a, a gold shield? Well, at that point, you, uh, you know, you had a you had to learn how to do investigations at that point. I mean, as a, uh, as a police officer, you, you had to know how to do investigations up to a point, mm-hmm. but you couldn't – we weren't allowed to go uh, beyond a certain point as, as, a, as a uniform cop or a plainclothes cop. You could investigate um, an incident that you got called to, say, day. You could investigate that up until the end of the shift. And if you couldn't make an arrest or close that out, it it got assigned to the detectives and you couldn't go beyond that. As a detective, we would pick up those cases and uh, start an investigation or pick up the investigation that was left off by by patrol. Um, You know, we were sent, the New York City Police Department sent us to to school. Uh, uh, We called it uh, detective school, but- uh, Um, it was, it was a, um, it was a course that was taught out of the police academy for newly appointed detectives. And, uh, they, they taught you the basics of doing investigations, interview technique, uh, you know, evidence collection techniques, photograph techniques, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's not like they threw you out there. They gave you a gold shield and threw you out there and told you to solve cases. You, there was a process that, you know, that we went through. Uh, and then they assigned us to you know to veteran detectives uh wow. and we would work with them so how did that work for you it It worked really well because i I met some some really really fantastic detectives uh a way that uh, were were more than happy to 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 teach me what they knew and sort of took me under their wing uh to, you know to help me uh get uh, you know, get, get the, um, what do I want to say? The, uh, the experience that I needed, right. uh, to become, you know, to become a, a, a good detective. But, yeah. but like you said before, these guys, these guys had 25, you know, maybe 25 years on a job. And, uh, a, a lot of that was, was as a detective. So, I mean, you're mm-hmm. learning from, from the best.
0: Right. And, you know? and in tough precincts too. It absolutely it wasn't like yeah. you know the quiet section of staten island you know
1: no. No, no no and it wasn't midtown manhattan it was it was real tough you know the you, you, i was a detective in brooklyn back in the, in the early 80s when the crack epidemic was was at its height so you you're talking you know uh very very uh violent sections of brooklyn uh the homicide rate in in the city at at that time was over 2,000. A uh, year? A year, that's, yeah.
0: That's the population of some small towns.
1: That's, that's a, that would be the citywide stats back back then during the crack epidemic. Uh, you know, t- uh, 2,000 homicides a year, 2,500 homicides a year. It was bad. Uh, you know, I, I remember going to work as a detective and we would get uh, three or four homicides a night. A night. a night. A night. And that's just in, you know, the, the small, relatively small area of, uh, you know, Brooklyn North. Wow. Um, there are some police know.
0: departments that don't get three or four homicides in a decade. You
1: know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, we, 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 we were sometimes at a point where we would have to, uh, we would have to call Headquarters and request them to reassign detectives from other precincts to help us out because we were just overwhelmed. Sure, I mean, you know, you, you're running, you're running from scene to scene to scene.
0: How much investigating can you really do? You Absolutely, you know, you,
1: you got to secure the scene and get what you can, and then move on to the next one. And the investigation doesn't start till you know a couple of days later when things when the dust settles. You know, yeah. and and we know from shows like Forty Eight
0: and other uh, relatively intelligent uh, police dramas. That you lose a lot during those first forty eight hours, but here you are just overwhelmed and not and making sure that you have to get the basics done before you can get start doing the investigations
1: absolutely, yeah, wow. you got to do you know you know basic homicide you know like I said, secure the scene uh try and try and gather witnesses and and take preliminary statements from them, then you got to go back you know when you get the chance and take a you know a, a full complete statement from them mm. um but you just kept running you know. Yeah, And that's part of what I, I enjoyed because you, there was never, you know, you never got bored. No. And at that time, were you still uh, rotating shifts or were you on a steady shift at that point? Well, we still, even as detectives, we had rotating shifts. We did, um, we did, uh, two week, two weeks of, uh, uh, a, a date tour, which was eight, four, Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we, I'm sorry. Uh, that was my, that was my, when I got promoted to sergeant, that was the sergeant shot. No, detectives, what we did was we did two, two, four, uh, four to one shifts, four in the afternoon till one in the morning. We did okay. two of those and then we did two day shift. So, so you, on the second 4 p.m. to 1 a.m., you double back and have to come back in the morning at eight mm-hmm. o'clock uh, and, and then you do two day tours. Okay. So it was a four and two chart uh two night tours and two day tours okay i gotcha and
0: uh and it, did it seem to work in terms of being able to get some momentum on cases or were you just getting you know,
1: no uh, it did it it did work because if if you caught anything uh when you were doing the four to twelves uh when you came, when you doubled back to do the day tours uh you had a little bit of time uh you know where things would calm down and you could s- kind of sort things out and and put the case together and, and and make day interviews too and and do the day interviews right right so and um you know we, we didn't we didn't always obviously we didn't always close the case during the the four days that we we were working but uh you know you would you would as you were catching new cases uh, you would still be working when you could on, on the, you know, the old cases. Right. Of course. Uh, yeah.
0: Now uh, you said you, you became Sergeant at some point. When did you become Sergeant? Um,
1: I want to say it was in nineteen eighty five, eighty four, eighty five. 84, 85, it might've yeah. been.
0: Now did you return to uniform or were you still in uh, investigative services?
1: No, I returned to uniform. I went back to patrol. That was the procedure back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, where if, uh, you know, if you got promoted, you got transferred. Okay. Uh, um, and because the police department was so large. Sure. You know, you could, you know, you, you could, they could do that. And this way you, you wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't be slash a sergeant. You wouldn't be supervising the same people that, you know, your, your, your buddies and colleagues that you were working with as a detective, you know? Gotcha. Um, but then, you know, after I, uh, I first made sergeant and I got sent out to Fort Greene in Brooklyn uh, and I stayed there for a few months and then uh, I put in for a transfer back to Brooklyn North, um, back to the precinct where I did work as a detective, but it was several months later and I got the transfer because nobody wanted to work there. Okay. You know, so it was easy, uh, but I, but I liked it there because it was so busy, you Yeah. Know? Uh, so I had no trouble transferring back there and, uh, I stayed there as a supervisor. Um, and then, um, friend of mine, uh who I had worked with as a detective, he got promoted and he got assigned to the, uh, to the department's medical unit or health services unit, uh, which oversaw, uh, all of the, uh, the entire police department, all of the, uh, Uh, The sick calls that that, uh, the office, when the officers would call out sick, um, every every line of duty injury, every time an officer got hurt in a line of duty uh, because the department had police, uh, police surgeons. And uh, when you called out sick uh, after so many days, you would have to come up and see the surgeon. So there was a whole unit created uh, basically to monitor, uh, you know, the sick leave. Uh, of, of all of the offices. Sure. And it also, it also, uh, dealt with the, uh, with, it helped the offices with the, with their, uh, uh, line of duty retirement issues that may have popped up and things of that nature, you know, it would <laughs> make recommendations whether they come back to work or they're permanently disabled and they have to be retired. Uh, so, uh, he went up there as a boss and then, uh, he, Reached out to me and he asked me if I would be interested in coming up there as the as uh you know uh as a sergeant in in the uh health services unit uh and i you know I thought about it at the time, and uh you know i had two young two young boys, and this gave me an opportunity uh to work steady day shifts and have the weekends off not bad so. So I said, you know what, I talked to my, uh, you know, I talked it over w- with the family and I said, you know what, I think I'm going to take this. So it, it worked out good because uh, as, you know, I got to be their little league coaches and I got to see them, you know, uh, play all the sports that they would play. And, you know, I got to watch them grow up. Yeah, just like a normal uh, dad. Yeah, exactly. And I and, uh, and I mean
0: that in a in a sense of, you know, Rotating shifts—it's uh, really hard to have that uh, continuity in a family situation. It's it's very oh, it very was, hard.
1: It, yeah, it was very hard. I remember we were working uh, when my uh, my youngest son was born. We were working a homicide, a, a rape homicide task force in uh, in Manhattan. We were looking for a serial rapist who was preying on senior citizens mm. and the rape. Uh, escalated into uh, well, the, well the last rape escalated into a homicide where the victim was killed uh, and we were working a, a task force, we probably had 50 or 60 detectives assigned to this task force looking for this guy and my youngest son was born, I was able to run to the hospital uh, see him and then I, you know, I came back to work, I picked up a box of cigars on my way back to, back to the precinct and passed out the cigars to everybody, mm-hmm. but that, that was, you know, that was the way it was, you know, you, you, you were just running and, uh, you know, when something like that's going on, you, you gotta be there. Yeah. You know,
0: and, and, you know, you say a box of cigars, I'm sure it wasn't Philly blunts. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs>
1: uh, different. No, these guys wouldn't accept that. <laughs> yeah. No, they wouldn't. And,
0: uh, and, and uh, anyhow we'll kind of leave it there but uh but anyway, so you're you're in a steady day shift and uh, your kids are growing up. Tell me about the next uh, promotion or next move within the well PDA. the next promotion
1: was to lieutenant okay, now you're a boss uh, right yeah. and uh, i with uh, a master's
0: degree and a bachelor's degree right yes. Correct. yeah,
1: and I fully expected to uh, after getting promoted, I fully expected to transfer out. Of the to be transferred out of the medical or health services uh, and go back to patrol because that's that was the policy. Uh, But what happened was uh, my boss, who the the uh, my friend who who asked me to work with him up there, um, he got promoted from lieutenant captain. So and then I shortly thereafter I got promoted from sergeant to lieutenant, and the way the the uh, command structure was in that unit was, was uh, a captain, a lieutenant, and, and three or four sergeants. So he, uh, he went to uh, the chief that oversaw the health services unit, and he told the chief, you know, we need a lieutenant now that I'm, you know, now that I'm a captain, you know, we got a slot for a lieutenant. He said, I'd like to keep Bob if that's all right. And chief, chief went along with it. So I stayed there. Oh, nice. So yeah, it was, it, it was nice. So that's where I finished out my career. I finished, finished out there, uh, in, uh, in 1994. And then you had to go work for oh, a ni- ni- 1993. Okay. In 1994, I, I, uh, I retired in November of 93. And in March of 94, I opened up the PI business. Okay. So, so tell me about pa- that. Well, this past March, uh, we just celebrated uh, our 25th year in business. As Congratulations. Pro- Thank you. I, yeah. I, I never thought, I really never expected it to go that long. Well, you know? it's been a second career for you,
0: literally. It has.
1: It, yeah. it has. Literally has. I, yeah. I did 20 years in a police department and 25 years as a PI. And you qualify for Social Security at some point later on in
0: your life. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh... So tell me about uh, how your work uh, grew as a uh, private investigator. I'm sure there were some things that you had to learn. And because a lot of cops think that just because they had a badge and a gun that they could just transfer skill sets. So what was your transition like from uh, law enforcement to uh, private investigations?
1: For me, it was very, very difficult because, um, you know, you, you, you had that you had that thought in your head that, you know, Hey, I was a detective. I could, I I could, you know, being a private investigator is, 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 you know, it's going to be a piece of cake. But the thing that people fail to realize is that now you're a a business owner Mm -hmm. and you have to learn how to run a business. Right. And that took a lot. I mean, there were a lot of bumps and hurdles, you know, and sometimes I fell down and I had to get back up. You know, I made mistakes as, as a businessman trying to open and, and run and keep the business running, mm-hmm. uh, that was difficult. That sure. was very difficult. Well, you had and to learn. You, you, you had to learn. And, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, in, in the beginning, until I started, uh, you know, networking and getting involved in the different PI groups, I, I, was, I didn't have anybody to teach me. So I was learning as, you know, as I went. And I made you know made a lot of mistakes, but you know? you, but you uh, dusted yourself
0: off, picked yourself up, and just kept you know punching. No, yeah, yeah, absolutely, you had to. Yeah, and well, uh, no, you didn't have to. You could go down to Miami and retire, <laughs> but you chose you chose to get up and keep going. Well, of, I,
1: I enjoyed the challenge. Yeah, you know, a lot of guys and, don't.
0: You know, they they give up when it, when it gets too tough and they go fi- and they go find something else like a golfing hobby or something you know
1: yeah yeah but and uh, but anyway I, uh,
0: you uh, you continue to grow as a private investigator as and as a business person providing investigative services
1: correct okay. and uh you know in in the beginning the uh, obviously the clients you know were few and far between but you had to go out and you had to market yourself and cultivate the business mm-hmm. and uh, you know network and, you know, little by little, um, you know, the work would come in. And, and uh, most of our work, even to this day, uh, it comes from attorney. Okay. Uh, and what I found with them is that it's very, very difficult. Uh, an attorney is not going to pick up the phone book and look for a PI. An attorney is going to pick up the phone and call a colleague and say, who do you use as an investigator? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I... I figured that out, and uh you know my uh plan was to work with the attorneys, do the best possible job i could to to make them happy in the hopes that they would refer me you know over, over lunch or over dinner to their colleague and you know and build build a the, the business or the client base from there and and that's what happened you know it it again it took it took a while it doesn't doesn't happen overnight. No. but uh that's the way even today that's the way we get most of our work is from attorney referral and
0: what it must be music to your ears to uh get a phone call from a new attorney saying oh uh attorney so and so suggested I give you a call and and you've been busting your butt for attorney so and so for years and he came he comes through with a referral and- it is
1: it's 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 very satisfying and it, it makes you feel good because well. you yeah. You know that you did a good job for 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 that attorney for him to recommend a friend to him. Absolutely, you know
0: that's true, and he's not going to recommend some schlub because it's going to reflect poorly on him. So right, yeah, yeah, yeah. for real. So uh, you know, off air, we talked a little bit about how our businesses are very very similar, but. Uh, right now you're still engaged, uh, very much in, uh, both criminal defense, wrongful conviction, exoneration, as well as personal injury investigations, essentially working for attorneys that represent either people who have been mangled in a bad accident or the families of people, uh, persons who died in a bad accident, or, uh, you represent, uh, uh, you work for attorneys that represent uh, a client that says, well, you know, it didn't happen like that. And uh, I didn't, uh, I shouldn't be charged with the crimes I've been charged with. So uh, if you want to just talk a little bit about, you know, your business and, you know, the kind of cases you work on, that'd be great. And then at the end, we can talk about your favorite cases. How's that sound?
1: Good. Good. All right. Um, yeah, the, the, I would have to say the bulk of our work uh, right now is... The, is the personal injury cases. Uh, We work for several uh, law firms in Manhattan uh, and, and their forte is personal injury. Uh, I I would have to say primarily uh, construction accidents uh, in, in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Um, Serious injuries very serious injuries, if not fatal injuries. So it's, it's either a personal injury investigation or it's a wrongful death investigation. And you're working for Uh the heavy
0: hitters and you have to establish liability.
1: You have to establish liability. You have to, uh, uh, you know, on the wrongful death cases, you have to attempt to establish pain and suffering. Right. Um, and, um, like I said, that's the bulk of our work right now or the, or the bread and butter. Mm Uh, we, we, but we also do criminal defense investigations, and we do uh, wrongful conviction investigations.
0: And you know, you've been away from the, the PD for a while now, so it's not like you're running up against uh, some of the guys that might have been, you know, you might have been sharing donuts with. And I don't mean that in a bad sense. You know what I mean? Uh, you're 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 dealing with different investigators, different detectives now, different precincts, different situations. So there's no. No situation where you're going up against, you know, the guys that you used to work with. It's yeah. No,
1: uh, I'm not. In fact, at this point in time, I mean, the, the New York City Police Department is is probably thirty five or 37,000 at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I know any of them. They're not there anymore. You know, they, they, uh, yeah, the, the guys that I worked with uh, have all cycled all, out are all gone. Yeah, yeah. they've all retired. Uh, so no, I'm not dealing with, uh, really anybody that I know there. And, and sometimes that's, you know, that hurts because right. it's nice to have, uh, you know, it's nice to have a hook, you mm-hmm. know, if you can pick up the phone and call somebody that, you know, you did work with, you know, Hey Lou, can you do me a <laughs> favor? You know? Absolutely. Those and days are over. I know. <laughs>
0: Now, first you got to talk about the kids and then you got to talk about the vacations and then you got to talk about the projects. Then you get around yeah. to talking about work. Now, yeah. I, I understand that. I, um, uh, I understand completely that, you know, but that, that, that then means that you've got to do it the hard way, not the easy way. And that means you've got to go out and, uh, beat the street, uh, maybe go out on multiple visits to talk to different people and, uh, it's not always as easy as it looks like on TV.
1: So No, it's it's not mm-hmm. uh and and you do have to do that. Uh you have to be out there. Uh you know, even even when I was a detective, that was one of the things that they just constantly drummed into your head was, you know, uh get get away from the desk. Put down the phone, get away from the desk and go knock on doors. You know, there was a you know? there was a um
0: a writer that uh, I love his name is Lawrence Block, and he had a, a fictitious private detective by the name of Matthew Scudder, and and I don't know if he swiped this from the PD itself or he made it up. I don't know. I never asked him. But the uh, the acronym is Goyakod, and G O Y A K O D, and it stood for Get off your ass and knock on doors. <laughs> and uh, I always I always enjoyed that. You know that. You know when he uh started to be sitting around his uh his his private detective office this you know detective fictional pi mm-hmm. he decided that he'd have to goyaodd or he'd get angry at some other detectives that were still on the job that just you know they they they, they didn't know how to get away from their desk you know in other yeah. words they were desk pogues for lack of a better word you know they could they could uh, type real well uh-huh. <laughs> but yep. not, but not get the job done now of course that's a that's fictional stories. But anyway, I digress. And yeah, so, but uh, now did your, um, criminal defense work and other criminal investigations take you over all five boroughs or was it still mostly in, uh, New Hat- uh Manhattan? Uh,
1: no, I, I would have to say, uh, probably the bulk of the defense investigations were out of Brooklyn. Okay. Um, we had a couple in, uh, uh, Orange County, New York, upstate New York. Oh, okay. Um, and, and and a few in Manhattan, but probably the bulk has come out of Brooklyn.
0: And once you get a good rep for being a hard charging uh criminal defense investigator, criminal defense attorneys f- seek you out.
1: Oh, they do. It's yeah. you know, it's it's the same thing. It's attorney referrals. Uh, you know, once uh, once once a criminal defense investigator, you do work for, for one and, and you do a good job. He'll you know, he'll pass your name along to others.
0: Now. I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, Bob, but there is a difference between investigating to find probable cause or to find reasonable doubt. And then the defense investigator is to uncover facts that uh, create reasonable doubt. I know those are the differences, but how did you find the difference in going about your business? And what what did you see as being uh, the major differences between, uh, well, essentially putting people in behind bars and for crimes that they did commit versus getting people out of jail for crimes that they didn't commit. So,
1: well, I was, um, I was kind of resistant in the beginning, get into the, uh, criminal defense work. And, uh, and obviously so there was a
0: lot of, you know, growing, I mean, there were a lot of 20 some years of chasing the bad guys. It's kind of hard to flip the switch.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so it, you know, it, it, it took me a while and it wasn't till, um, I had told you off off the air that I had a I, I have they do uh, a partner uh, by the name of Kim Anklin, who was a crime and intelligence analyst from the Ventura, California Police Department. Mm-hmm. And uh, she started working uh, with us in 2012. And um, it was actually she convinced me to give it a try. She says, "You know," she said, Let, "Let's try it and see if you like it. If you don't, we'll we'll stick with the personal injury stuff. We don't have to do any more." Okay. So I said, "All right, we'll, we'll give it a shot." And and to be honest with you, it was so uh, it was it was a while ago, and I don't remember specifically what case it was, but it was a criminal defense case. And when I when I got into it, and I saw the the mistakes that were made. Uh, and the missteps and the miscues that mm-hmm. were done, I, I said, wait a minute, this is all wrong. They should have They should have did it this way. Then they should have, you know, they should have went this route. And, and this should have happened. And, you know, w- w- I, I guess when you see it on paper and, and y- you know, you know how to do a criminal investigation, and when you see one on paper that wasn't done right, it kind of, I kind of said to myself, this this shouldn't be. Right, you know right and uh that's what got me you know that's what got me into it and 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 to our points both of
0: our points cuz we both do criminal defense investigator investigative work uh we're not about slamming um the police we're not about slamming the the actual detectives we're about elevating the uh the business uh not the business we're about elevating investigation so that the truth comes out and if, right. and when you see that an investigation that was done did not really address getting the truth, but it went towards uh, tunnel vision on this particular suspect, which they later arrested and maybe possibly convicted. Uh, You see that the truth has not been served. And as part of the balance, uh, criminal defense investigators, you know, through the Constitution of the United States, which guarantees um, defenses from onerous government there has to be a check and balance in place, and we're basically there to check and ba- do a check and balance on that investigation to see if it cuts muster, and if it doesn't, then what is the true facts and where do they lie? You know? Right. And uh, did I kind of say that for you? But is that what you, where you were going
1: with it? No, that that was where I was going, and 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 you know, when Kim and I go out to meet a, a defense attorney or and or the the, the client, the client, right. We will sit down with them and we will tell them, look, if you decide to hire us, we are going to look at the facts of the case, mm-hmm. wherever they land, good or bad, we're, we're looking at fact. So if if that's what you want in us as investigators, then we're the right people. If you want us to look at the fact and then look uh, look away or look over here, we're not going to do that. No. It, you know, we're we're going to we're going to get to the bottom of the story, to the truth, wherever it lies. Mm-hmm. And a good and, cr-
0: and a good criminal defense attorney will appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And, well, maybe a new attorney that heard of you who doesn't have those same scruples may not. But that's not your problem. That's their problem, you know, because right. you're, still, you're the umpire. You're still going to call a ball a ball. You're still going to call a strike a strike, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just the way you roll. And, and that's what they have to understand. The good attorneys appreciate that. They want to know because in that they can then sculpt the best defense that they can for their client based upon understanding what the true facts are.
1: Right. Right. And, and I remember uh, attending a, uh, a conference, I think it was Nicosia, the years ago. Okay. Uh, it was up in uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts, and it was the New England Association of Private Investigators. I don't know if it's still around or not. Mm. Uh, but E. Bailey was was the keynote speaker there. Okay. And, and I remember him saying that uh, it it the investigator's job to educate the attorney and and let him know, uh, you know, let the attorney know what can be done done and can't be done and what be done and what wasn't done. Yeah. And he says as as educators it's your job to educate the attorney and and you supply the attorney. You fill the attorney's briefcase so he can go into court and argue the case.
0: Well, and Ethel Lee Bailey had been a, an investigator himself before becoming a, a,
1: a Yes, he was. Yeah, a, a criminal
0: defense yeah. investigator and yeah. uh, I'm 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 not sure what he's doing these days, but he always credits his investigators for bringing him the case, uh, the evidence that he could pound on the table with. And, yep. and part of that education also, you know, let's face it, you're dealing with a lot of egos when you're dealing with attorneys. Um, part of that uh, education is to be able to communicate your findings in a way that doesn't make them feel like they don't know what they're talking about, uh, that in a way that, uh, they can see the the value of the uh, facts that you're presenting and they can they can then extrapolate those facts and become evidence that they can use for their arguments
1: during during right. the trial.
0: So, yeah, for real. Yeah. And,
1: and there are attorneys that appreciate that. And yes. there are and I um, it's easy to tell those attorneys from uh, other attorneys that don't appreciate it. Because the good ones, the good defense attorneys, the good civil attorney will ask us for our opinion or our recommendation. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to listen. It's one thing to tell them, this is what we recommend be done. But then when they go out and do it, it's the the fact that they'll listen to our recommendations. Then you know you got a good attorney relationship with the PI.
0: Well, Mm -hmm. the way I like to look at it too, Bob, is that there are times when... Uh you give me the case, you tell me what your theory of liability is, you tell me what you, your theory of defense is, whether it's personal injury or criminal offense. I go out and do the investigation that I think is necessary to support the theory of liability or to support the theory of defense. That doesn't mean I'm changing facts or doing anything, but I'm just lo- looking for evidence that would bolster or support those theories. Now, right. the attorneys that then would rather though give you a, a a grocery list and then turn you into a lead runner it's like well yeah i guess i can do that but realistically we need to do a b and c <laughs> yeah. and if they understand that you're the pro doing investigations and you can accept their their direction but you can do those things as part of you know the 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 investigation that needs to be done then um they're the kind of attorneys that uh, appreciate what you bring to the table because let's face it, a lot of guys and gals can just be lead runners. They can go out there and do A, B, and C, bring it back to the attorney, build the case out and move on to the next one and never even think twice about all the stuff that was left on the table, all the, uh, the, the leads that could have been generated during that case. And, uh, it's just a matter of uh, mindset, how you, how you, communicate with your attorney about how the investigation should be done. You're the expert in investigations. They're the experts in the courtroom. Let's just, you know, and I kind of have to sometimes remind attorneys that, you know. Yes, I, you do. I, I would never try to stand before a, a judge and a jury and try to argue a case. Um, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn last night. So, <laughs> But the point being is that, you know, we are the experts at what we do. And that's the, that's the thing that I'm hearing from you. So we're about that stage, Bob when we're in the uh in the interview when I ask my guests what their favorite stories are, so
1: I'm sure you have a few well I think our 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 most rewarding story I think would be the uh, the wrongful conviction investigation we did uh for uh Jonathan Fleming. tell us a little um,
0: background on the case
1: okay uh Jonathan was uh, Arrested for a uh, a homicide in uh, actually Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, and uh, he was convicted and he did almost 25 years. He did like 24 and change. Uh, and the uh, compelling thing about this case was that uh, he told us that at the time of the homicide, he was in Disney World, Florida, with his wife and kid and his mother. Kind of hard, time, kinda at hard the time to kill somebody. Homicide, yeah. yeah. Um, so the family, Jonathan's family first first reached out to us in uh, 2012, and uh, his wife at the time uh, saw a uh Googled us and, and saw our website and she spoke to it and, uh, said that, you know, Jonathan wanted to hire us, uh, to look into his case. So we talked for a while and, um, you know, she asked me, uh, what I thought it would cost, what our fees were and, and how much of a retainer we would want. And I told her, and she said, okay, she says, "I, I you know, I, I like the things that you said. I like the way you answered the questions. Uh, she says, uh, we, we're not quite at the stage where we can, you know, can hire you right now, but I'll get back to you. And I said, fine. I said, keep, you know, keep my number and um, call us, you know, w- let us know what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people... I've had people do that before, and most of the time, you never hear from them again, you know?
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Uh, but then a year later, uh, in 2013, they called back, and they said they were in a position now to hire us. Uh, but they said that Jonathan wanted to speak to us. So we arranged a, uh, a conference call between uh, Jonathan, myself, and, and my partner, Kim. And we spoke to him on the phone and he had very specific questions to ask us he was he was doing his due diligence sure and and it was like a job interview he was interviewing us to for a job to be his investigated and uh he was satisfied and uh you know they they hired us and um i remember we went to his lawyer's office uh in queens he at that point uh, when he hired us, he didn't have a, a full-time uh, lawyer working for him um, He wasn't using the trial lawyer uh, He was he was using uh, another lawyer who was kind of working the case part-time pro bono for him okay. uh, so when we, uh, when he, they hired us as the investigators the lawyer said look come out to my office he says I got two boxes of transcripts and paperwork. Police reports. You guys can have, take them with you, go through them, and good luck. So we, uh, Kim and I, went out and we, we we picked up the two boxes of material and uh, we left, and uh, you know we split them up in police, you know, police reports and you know transcript from from the, the you know the trial, post trial, pre trial, you know, all the, all of the court appearances. Mm-hmm. And we, we proceeded to go through them. And, you know, as, as a crime analyst, uh, you know, that was Kim's thing. She would, she would go through volumes of paperwork and, and look, look for things that should be there or things that shouldn't be there. Or, uh, and she created a timeline and working off the timeline. Uh, and I guess uh, after we read all of the paperwork, we went out to the crime scene. Because uh, that was that was our, our SOP of doing you know doing a, a, a an investigation like this. We wanted to know the case inside and out before we even walked out the door. So when it was time to look for witnesses and encounter people on the street, uh, we would know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So we did that. We went to the crime scene, and uh, Jonathan was convicted. Uh, Solely on a basis of one eyewitness. And uh, that eyewitness was an an admitted crack addict. uh, uh, Very, very early on in in the case, after after she testified, she immediately uh, tried to recant her testimony because she said she was coerced by the police. In saying what she said. Mm -hmm. And she um, she had gotten picked up in a stolen car with some crack in it. And uh, she said that the police uh, told her that if they cooperate, if she cooperated with the with the Fleming investigation, um, they could cut her a deal. So that's why she testified the way she did against Jonathan. But again, she, she recanted almost immediately after the when trial was over when he was convicted. So she said, she had said that she was in a building, she was in the lobby of a building and she saw from the building at two o'clock in the morning after smoking crack all day, she saw Jonathan Fleming shoot and kill the victim. So when we went to the crime scene, the first thing we did was take measurement, so and and photograph. Mm-hmm. So um, I put Kim in the building where the witness said she was standing, and I went to the building where the victim fell, or well, not fell, but was shot. Right. And we could not see each other with the naked eye. Isn't that crazy? It was only until I looked with a pair of binoculars that I could see Kim in the window, yeah. so the next step was to take uh, I took my little measuring wheel that I sometimes use in the personal injury accidents absolutely, and we measured the distance from where the victim was shot to the 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 uh the base of the building where this woman was was looking out the window. And it turned out it was 423, 21 or twenty-three feet well, away. Uh, doing crack all day helped in her, a bit,
0: helped in, her in, eyesight a great deal. She had like uh, telescopic vision by two <laughs> o'clock in the morning, right, Bob?
1: Yeah, and <laughs> and uh, you know, to put I uh, when I tell people that they're amazed. But if you put it into perspective, uh, and, and a lawyer actually made this analogy. To me, he said, "421 feet is like standing at home plate in Yankee Stadium and picking out a guy in the center field bleep. Yeah, he says, and yeah. that's your that's your eyewitness. Your and he got convicted solely on on her mm. testimony. So now he had uh, he had uh, plane receipts, hotel receipts. Uh, photograph videos of him and his family in Florida at the time. Uh, and they still managed the prosecutor still managed to convict, convince the jury that he did it.
0: That, that, that did he, that he, that the, uh, that Disney world was bogus or that he went down and came back and then went down and came back.
1: Well, here's the interesting thing about that. Not that, it, not that Disney was bogus, that, that he had enough time to come down and com, uh, commit the right. homicide and get back. But he only brought that up. He, he, he had no evidence to support that theory, and that theory was never brought up during the course of the trial. Threw that in in his summation. Uh,
0: which is not evidentiary.
1: No. Right. Huh. And he just suggested to the jury that there was enough time to – uh, and I think he had he had done some research, and he and he said there were fifty one or fifty two flights uh, th- during that time frame that he could have gotten on any one of them mm. uh, that would have brought him into into Newark or LaGuardia, and he could have gotten in a cab, drove to Brooklyn, did the murder, and then drove back and got back on the plane. Not not producing any evidence of the fifty one flight not producing that he ever was on any one of those flights. He just threw it out there at the end when he was summing up in the closing argument and it stuck right. and, and, and he got convicted. So, um, we went out and we looked for other witnesses, uh, who were not eyewitnesses. Uh, luckily, uh, uh you know, this, this happened in 1989 uh, we, w- we were fortunate that everybody was still alive. Very fortunate. Uh, uh, we were very lucky in that respect. Uh, and we managed to track down uh, all of the people um, that the police had interviewed uh, and took statements from. And this took us all over. I mean, we, we started out in Brooklyn. We we went to uh, New Jersey. We went to Pennsylvania. Uh, we went to uh, Florida, Florida. We went to South Carolina and uh, we even found one in Puerto Rico Uh, and we were able to get statements from them uh, to support the fact that, you know, he, uh, Port Arcade, uh, that, you know, he did not, uh, you know, that he wasn't in town that day. They knew he was, everybody knew he was in Florida because he had told everybody he was going. Um, And what we did was we took the case, we took the information. Finally, we found a woman who was never interviewed by the police. And, uh, we convinced her to give us a statement, a written statement. And basically she said, uh, that she was at her mother's house in Brooklyn. And she said, her brother, friend of her brother, who she knew by name and a third individual, uh, drove up to the house in Jonathan's car. Jonathan had a distinctive car. Uh, He had a blue uh, Volvo convertible and uh, he had lent the car to his cousin while he was in Florida. So this witness told us that the cousin drove up in the blue Volvo with, with her brother and a third individual who she knew from the neighborhood, but not by name. And she said they were very upset, very excited. And she overheard them saying, um, do you think he's dead? Do you think he's dead? And she said they were all disheveled and sweating and everything and very nervous. So we took that. And since she was never interviewed before <clears throat> by the police and she never testified in court, we were hoping that that would be our newly discovered evidence. Right. So we took that to the uh, uh, fortunate for us that the Kings County, uh, the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, had a conviction review unit. Yes, so uh, which was a, a
0: conviction integrity unit. Right. Uh, new uh, New DA uh, Ken Thompson. Ken Thompson. Right. Well,
1: actually, actually, this was before Thompson. This was when Charlie Hines was still the DA. Okay. Uh, when we got this information, so we took it to the conviction review unit. And they gave us, uh, they gave us an audience to sit down and allowed us to present this to them. And, um, they said, okay, uh, what do you want to do next? And Kim and I told him, well, we want to interview, uh, we couldn't interview the girl's brother because he was dead. He died in a car accident. So we, the next person we said we wanted to interview who she said was there, was Jonathan's cousin who who was driving his car so we said <clears throat> we want to interview the, Jonathan's cousin because he was driving the car the night of the homicide mm-hmm. and and he was down in South Carolina so we said the logical thing to do would be to to interview him and see what he has to say so <clears throat> the 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 bureau chief of the conviction integrity unit said said to to us what do you think this guy's going to confess to driving the getaway car? And Kim and I said, if we get a chance to talk to him, he may. We don't know what he's going to say, but we got to find out. We got to talk to him. So he says, so what are you going to do? So we said, we're going to South Carolina. So in the meeting with two uh, detective investigators from the DA's office. So he said, all right, he says, let's do this. He says, I want you guys to go, meaning them, to go with us to South Carolina and be there during this interview. So they agreed. And he, then he turned around and he said, I want you guys to work together on this. He said, whatever you learn, you'll share with my guys and whatever they learn, they'll share with you. And we said, fine. I said, "That, that that's like the best case scenario. Very unique. <laughs> it's, it was very unique. And I believe it was the first and only time uh, at least in Brooklyn, uh, where did this, this ever happened, I don't think it's happened since. And I was very surprised that it happened uh, where where you have defense investigators and prosec- prosecution detectives working together. Uh, it, w- it was very unique. And like I said, I don't think it's been done. I don't think it was ever done. And I don't know that it's been done since. Mm. So anyway, the four of us. Before we left, we contacted the sheriff's office down there uh, uh, to and t- tell them what was going on, and um, they agreed to be there uh, and accompany uh, accompany us to to the residence. So we went down there and um, we uh, we met with the cousin who was driving the car along with his mother. And I'll never forget it was it was a, it was a November day. I think it was November 5th or 6th. Um, and But it was very, very warm down there. And we were sitting out in the backyard at a picnic table. And you had the four of us from New York. You had the cousin, and you had uh, his mother and then you had the uh, an investigator from the sheriff's office and two two uniformed deputies from the sheriff's office
0: <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> yeah that's 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 quite
1: a, a traveling circus i hate yeah, to say yep um so they the, the the sheriff personnel sort of went you know just went to the side and let us do our thing mm-hmm. so we started the the four of us the four investigators started interviewing him and you know telling him what we knew. And we, uh, you know, it it was difficult because he was denying everything and everything, anything. And, uh, you know, we kept at him and we kept at him. And then finally, I opened up a package of signed statement that we had from like half a dozen different people saying that he was there that night, that they saw him get in the car and they saw him drive the car. So, you know, we said to him, this person said this. This person said that. This person said this. And we kept hitting them with these affidavits.
0: Now, the affidavits were not fabricated. They were the truth. No, they were there. They were
1: the truth. They and were they, signed.
0: And As they they were, were
1: signed. They were notarized. And these people had told us that.
0: Right. And years later.
1: Yeah. Years, years yeah.
0: later. Right. Okay. Years
1: later. These were brand new affidavits that we got when we started working the Cape. Gotcha. So, you know, finally... The, one of the detectives said from from the DA's office. He said, "Look, do you think that we just threw a dot on a map and wound up in Kingstree, South Carolina, to talk to you? We're here because we were led here by our and by our, and and he pointed to all of us. You know, by our investigation. So we we talked some more. We talked some more. We talked some more. And I, I guess it would." three hours, four hours, maybe we were sitting out there. And finally he admitted to being the driver of the car. And he, and he admitted to being there. He said, he didn't see the shooting. He said, when the shots were fired, he ran towards the car. And these other two guys, one of which was, was this, the, the, uh, the newly discovered evidence uh, witness, her brother and a third guy, so the three of them get to the car. He jumps in a driver's seat. One guy jumps into the passenger seat. And this, this third guy, who's only known by his nickname, jumps in the back. And he says to the cousin who's behind the wheel, let's get out of here. He said, I just popped that guy. And the cousin drove <clears throat> to the the uh, the house where, th- where this woman said they pulled up and they were in Jonathan Carr and they were all upset and where that's where she overheard them talking. So that corroborated her statement. hmm So basically the cousin became the the getaway driver right. on this homicide. Right. So after he pulled at this, the investi- the detectives from the DA's office told him, Listen, we want to get this on tape and we just want you to Tell, you know, say on the tape exactly what you just told us. So they got it. They got it recorded. We all went back to the car and they immediately called the bureau chief in Brooklyn to to update him as to what happened. And he said, I want you to get a written statement from him. He says, I want uh, I, I want it. He says, get a written statement from him and send fax it back to us here in the office. So they did that. They got, we got a written statement from them. We went to the sheriff's office and faxed it back to the, to the DA's office in Brooklyn. They wrote it up. They typed it up in the form of an affidavit and sent it back to us at the sheriff's office. And he signed it. And one of the sheriff department personnel notarized it. So yeah. now, we a, now we had a fully executed written statement from the driver of the getaway car. Sworn, sworn affidavit. One affidavit. So we we take the affidavit, we 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 faxed the sworn affidavit back to them in New York, and we had we physically had the hard copy. Right. So the four of us leave, we all go back to the hotel, we sit down, we're having a nice dinner, celebrating what we all thought was tremendous victory, and we look up at the news, and it was in November, it was election day. And the DA, Charles Hines, had just got voted out and Ken Thompson won the election. So now we looked at each other and said, well, now what do we do? So we didn't, you know, we didn't know whether it was a good thing for us or a bad thing or, or what. you know. Mm-hmm. So the, the next day we go back to New York and they present uh, the information. They, they were debriefed by the, uh, by the bureau chief. And at that point, he agreed to reopen the case. Ken and Thompson convict- did. No, no, the bureau chief under, under Charles Hines. Okay, because Thompson got elected. Thompson won the election in November, but he would he wouldn't take office until January. Okay, got it. So uh, the bureau chief under Charles Hines said, "Okay, we're going to now conduct a an investigation out of this office, out of this conviction integrity office." <clears throat> so they went out at that point. We we had already spoken to everybody and we gave them the name and contact information and addresses of the people that we spoke to so they could go out on their own and do, you know, interview those people themselves. We already did and we already had written statements from everybody. So we just turned over everything we had in the spirit of cooperation mm-hmm. and we gave and and we gave it to them and they went out. And they, they did their investigation and, um, uh, they wound up interviewing Jonathan. They brought him down. He was in a prison up in Buffalo, New York. They brought him, uh, uh, back to New York, uh, back to Brooklyn and they interviewed him. They interviewed all of the people. And the day that they interviewed, uh, Jonathan right after, right after the interview, uh, the the assistant da from the conviction integrity unit slides a piece of paper across the table it was it was upside down so you couldn't see what was written on it and she slides it across the table and she says you may be interested in it and when we flipped the paper over it was a xerox copy of a telephone receipt from the hotel in florida that was paid by jonathan three hours before the homicide or two hours before the homicide was went down in Brooklyn. Where'd she get that from? She got it from the fire, the DA's file. Oh my. So at that point, you know, we, we knew, you know, this is it. We're going to get him out. Now this was, this was the end of November. This was, I think a week or so before Thanksgiving. Because <clears throat> we were down in South Carolina in the in the, the first week of November, so this had to be like the third week of November. So we figured, okay, he he might be out by Christmas. You know, we may get him out. And lo and behold, the DA Charlie Hine decided that he was not going to make any decisions on any exoneration, and he was going to leave everything. For for the new the incoming DA to take care of, so Jonathan sat there for Christmas. When Ken Thompson came in, he got sworn in in January. He didn't make a decision right away, and and rightly so. He wanted to review all of the all of the cases that the conviction review unit was working on. He wanted to get up to speed on everything before he made a decision like this. And I can I can totally understand that. So he didn't make a decision until April, so Jonathan, basically, we had the proof in November of 2013, and Jonathan sat in jail from then until April before the board uh, Ken Thompson signed off, and the case went court, and the conviction was overturned.: Wow, and it took us we took the case. In April of 2013, and he was exonerated April 8th of 2014. So it took us one year of full-time work, doing nothing else, no hmm. other cases, working on it, but we we were successful in getting him exonerated.
0: Yeah, and that wasn't uh, pro bono, it was low bono. <laughs> that
1: was uh, That was low bono.
0: Yeah, it uh, was. Uh, you don't get paid a lot of money, but what you got paid for that was... Walking an innocent man out of prison.
1: Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing because that day uh, he walked into the building in handcuffs, and he walked out with Kim and I. Mm-hmm. And w- what a feeling! I'll oh, yeah. tell you, what a rush. Yeah,
0: for, for <laughs> and, all, and for all of you.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and then you walk out. You walk out of of Brooklyn Supreme Court, and there's hundreds of reporters, and and you know they you, you can. They were all in the courtroom when when the judge vacated the conviction and he and and when he read the the circumstances that uh, led to the 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 exoneration, you could see the faces on the photographers in the courtroom. Their jaws just dropped. They couldn't believe it, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And then when we're outside, they had met us outside and and, you know, that you can hear the. You know, the shutters on the cameras going off and the bright lights. And, you know, it was it was amazing. It was amazing. And and I don't know anything about
0: the uh, how Jonathan reacted to that. But it's been my experience with other exonerees that mostly they're grateful for their family. Mostly they're grateful for their faith and mostly that they're, they're not really bitter or, or angry. They just, you know, are very grateful uh, to the people that supported them. And can you tell me about Jonathan?
1: Yeah, he was the same way, which, I mean, I was, I was surprised. I mean, there was, Mm -hmm. there was no anger at all. He was, you know, his, his mother was, was in the courtroom and, and that was one of the things that, um, you know, his mother was very sick and, uh, she, she made it to the courtroom to watch the exoneration and prior to that, she had, she had made, Kim and I promised her that we would get him out before she died. And, you know, you never make a promise like that. No. So all we said was we would do our best, you know. Um, And, you know, luckily we did. And he had had like three or four months with her before she passed. Oh, my. You know, so we. uh, She never gave up hope and neither did he. Never, never gave up hope. Neither one of them did. And, and, she, and she said, she says, I know <clears throat> my boy didn't do this. She says, because he was with me because she was in Florida with him.
0: Yeah. But her, but her alibi witness doesn't count because she's family.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Bob you know I mean, And the alibi witness of his three kids and his wife at the time. Right. No, they you don't, know? they don't count either. Yeah.
0: Oh man. But, but here's a situation where. Uh, there were plenty of times, probably during parole hearings, when he had to uh, stand before them, and he chose to say he was innocent. He didn't do the crime, so therefore there was no remorse at his actions. And they and, they, and they just kept uh, denying his parole because he wouldn't show any remorse for his uh, for committing the crime. Because well, he didn't do it. Correct. Yep. <laughs> right. Yep. So that and, that's, and-, and that probably extended his time in jail. He might have gotten out earlier if he just. Uh, tried to play the system, you know.
1: Yeah, and he said he was never gonna, he was never gonna admit to something he didn't do. That's right. So anyway, so what's the what's the story with Jonathan now? I mean, is, um, he's uh he uh he's doing well. He's he's living down in North Carolina. Uh, he uh yeah, I, I got, get I get out of Dodge too. He's <laughs> <laughs> he's um. He's, um Finished with his uh, all of the civil suit, okay. uh, you know, this uh, this civil suit against the city of New York, the civil mm-hmm. suit against the state of New York. Those have all been settled. Okay. Uh, he's gotten, um, you know, monetary compensation as a result of those suits. Uh, you know, it, to, he's gotten, you know, the, to me, the compensation can't replace or never will replace the 25 years that he spent in prison. But it, it's something to, you know, to help, I guess. I know. You know?
0: But to your point, it, it was, he, this wasn't 25 years knowing that he was going to get out. This was serving time in jail where possibly uh, there was no hope in sight. And you were his last uh, life raft. You were his last uh, life preserver. And without you guys, uh, he might have uh, continued to ser- be serving time in jail, but you know, at year 17 or year 18, you know, he was looking at a long time in jail and there was no hope of getting out. There was nothing going on then. Remember it was a year also between the time that his family first came to you until they came back to you. So there was no guarantees that he would be getting out and that the truth truth would ever surface. And he was serving time knowing that he was innocent but not knowing that there would be ever be an opportunity for him to see the light of day uh as a innocent man and
1: no and and he said that he said that we you know we were the only ones Kim and I he said were the only ones that believed in him and he had you know over the years he had other private investigators working on his case mm-hmm. and uh for whatever reason uh you know they weren't successful uh but you know he's, you know he said over and over again that you know you guys were the only ones that believed me, mm-hmm. and and we 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 believed him very very early on in the investigation probably probably maybe between week four and six into mm-hmm. the investigation. Yep, is the day we went out to the crime scene. Right. I was going to say that you had 427 I, reasons why. Yeah. <laughs> the, that day. Kim and I looked at each other and they, and we said I don't think this guy did it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mhm. And uh you know it's, it it was it was amazing. Uh the whole the whole thing it was and it was a roller coaster ride because there were there were you know there were highs and lows and it was emotionally draining. Oh yeah. To, to that, all of it, you and know. Pol- political intrigue. Oh the yeah. political the political stuff was just nonsense. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, you know. Uh, a man's
0: life is in the balance, and 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 how does a, how do politics play?
1: Yeah, and, you know, yeah. I'm not going to make any. I lost the election. I'm not going to make a decision. Let the other guy do it. You know?
0: Yeah, lame, there are some <laughs> things you can be a lame duck for. I, I get it, but there are some other things that you know uh, you got to do the right thing.
1: And and um, I, I got to tell you too, we, we met Ken Thompson, uh, and and what a terrific individual he turned out to be. Um, he was just great, and we went to a uh, uh, and a, uh, a dinner giving by uh, the Society of Professional Investigators. Sure, um, and Ken Thompson was the speaker at the dinner dinner speaker. And you know, we were talking to him before before the dinner, and uh, Kim and I were you know talking and and we were talking about Jonathan's case. And when it came time for him to get up, he spoke about the conviction integrity unit and, you know, what he wanted to do uh, and where he wanted it to go in the future. And then he turned and there had to be 250 people at this dinner in this room. Yeah. And he he got up there and he publicly apologized to Jonathan Fleming by name and said, we got this wrong. And I am very sorry for what we did to him. And I mean, there were lawyers in the room. There were investigators in the room. And everybody looked at each other and their mouth hung open. And the lawyers said, I have never heard a sitting prosecutor apologize to someone for a wrongful conviction. And it was just amazing to hear him say that. And nor
0: have I. I've never heard it
1: myself. And I've had plenty of
0: cases where they got it wrong. And there's never been an admission of getting it wrong. Um, always some, always some BS excuse. Yep. But there's that. That's a uh, that's a good way to end our conversation, Robert. So okay. if people want to get in
1: touch with you, how can they get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to call you? Uh, they can call me at um, uh, eight four area code eight four five seven eight one seven two three three. Or they can reach me via email at brahn, B-R-A-H-N at nysleuth.com. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage them if they're uh, interested to uh, visit our website, which is nysleuth.com. Perfect.
0: I really appreciate that. Thank you for being on the podcast with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for having me. and I, I enjoyed it. And hold on a second. Okay. Thank you
0: for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is Bruce Maitland. Bruce's interest in missing persons began terribly and abruptly on March 19th, 2004. His 17-year-old daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing. Life changed from that point to a living hell that no parent should ever go through. In the years since, The endless searching and sleepless nights, not knowing where or what happened to her, has taken its toll and continues to this day. In the last few years, the idea was brought to him by a friend and a private investigator, Greg Overacre, who has donated much time and energy to assist in finding Brianna to start the private investigations for the Missing Foundation. It is an unfortunate reality that police have limited resources and time, and private investigators can sometimes get answers from people unwilling to speak to the police. It is also an unfortunate reality that costs of private investigators are beyond the ability of most people to afford them. Bruce started the foundation, Private Investigations for the Missing, to help solve this problem for missing persons and their loved ones. He does this to honor his daughter, Brianna Maitland. This episode is brought to you by my own crime thriller with a mystery twist, Odessa on the Delaware. A Russian gang enforcer is on a murderous rampage to take over the entire Philadelphia mob scene. A homeless vet doesn't know that he has the proof or that he's next on the list. The stakes are high for this deadly cat and mouse game set on the bleak Philly waterfront of years gone by. FBI agent Marsha O'Shea, a gunslinger from the Miami cartel days, is back in her hometown, quietly finishing out her career, but now is drawn into this case with a secret pushing her doggedly to follow the clues, only to uncover a greater secret that may get her killed in the final showdown. You can buy Odessa from your favorite online retailer. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to johnhoda.com and click on the podcast page. There you will find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. And they're available for you free with your email subscription to the podcast as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes from my book titled Mugshots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now, here is my ask. If you were informed, inspired, and entertained by the stories today, don't be bashful. Please take a moment to share this podcast with your friends, then leave a review on your favorite podcatcher. If you like to leave a comment, you can do so on the website at www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thank you so much, and have a great day.